We've got questions on Thomas Woods, Catholic education, Appalachian history, and what is the coolest relic that Charles has had the privilege to venerate? Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu, now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House, here with Austro-Hungarian Charles Coulomb. Austro-Hungarian? You mean like under the double eagle? Uh, a, a loyal subject to the Habsburgs? Uh, a, a, a resident of the ancient imperial crown lands? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. I'm good with that. Yeah, that's fine. But I'm not Austro-Hungarian by nationality, so there. And and to add insult to injury, uh, it's a wonderful country, Austria-Hungary, even if it doesn't quite exist anymore. From Tyrol to Transylvania, from Czechia to Croatia, it's a wonderful country. I believe it. I've been to most of its major cities. I've been to Vienna, Budapest, Bratislava, Prague, Zagreb, Ljubljana, Krakow, uh, Lemberg, Lviv, uh, Chernovitz, Ushgorod, uh, Ungvar, if you prefer. I've been to Cluj, out in Transylvania, Koloshvar, Klausenburg. Um, it's it's just a wonderful country. And everywhere you go, you see the same sort of architecture, similar food. The languages are different, but that's about it. Everything else is very similar. Yeah, it occurred to me a long time ago that, you know, we don't really have any immigrants from Austria. And then it occurred to me it's probably because it's so nice there. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep, 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 yep. But... Do they have any immigrants to the United States? That's the question. Probably. Um, tell us, Charles. I don't know. Let me see. Let's the go to Wikipedia, source of all truth. Wikipedia. It's it's an interesting question, though, that uh, perhaps people have never thought of. I mean, every, we always sort of assume the world is wants to go to the United States, that people are immigrating to the United States. Uh, what other countries are people immigrating to? Well, let's see. Immigrants to Austria. American immigrants to Austria. Okay, let's see. There are 12 of them. Oh! You have got to be bloody kidding. What? I don't believe this. What? I don't believe that. All right. Here are the 12, there are 12 people here. The following 12 pages are in this category out of 12 total. I'm going to work backward from S to B rather than forward. What? I, well, there are 12 got, immigrants? There are, they list 12 immigrants uh, on Wikipedia in the category American Immigrants to Austria. Oh. And working backward, Arturo Silva and Norman Shetler, Aaron Rhodes and Denise Eisenberg Rich. Mike Malloy, Frederick Meyer, Thomas Moser, Natalia Kelly, Cy Friedman, Moshe Friedman, Charles A. Coulahome. 
and Ruth Brinkman. I don't know I any not. of those other people. That's pretty cool that you just happened to discover that you're on the Wikipedia page as an immigrant. Uh, yeah, but I'm not an immigrant. You have to correct that then. I don't know how. Well, I'll do it for you. Well, actually, you'd have to show me the page. It's, um, but or somebody else, some some other show just. Yeah, so Jamie Alton, I'm not an immigrant. Yeah, we'll take care of that. Uh, I'm coming back sometime or other. Uh, but you know, they do have me in several other things. This is interesting. Living people. That's good to know. 1960 births. Yes, I'm good with that. American Christian Democrats. All right. American monarchists. Good. California State University Northridge alumni. Good. What about NIMI? They don't mention the Mexico Military Institute. Writers from Los Angeles. Okay. 21st century American poets. All right. Roman Catholic religious educators. I don't know. Do I fit that? I'm not sure. American traditionalist Catholics. Uh, traditionalist Catholic writers. 21st century American male writers. American immigrants to Austria. Knights of Peter Claver and Ladies Auxiliary. That's certainly true. American people of French-Canadian descent. That's also true. Just out of curiosity... You know, I am in my my entry is in two other languages, Czech and Chinese. Uh, the Czech Czech's pretty detailed, actually. What about the Chinese? You're you're on the government's radar. Uh, I don't know. Let me see. Let's see the I, Chinese. I oh no, it's not Chinese. It's Japanese. My mistake. The Japanese say, oh, Charles, now, the, uh, <laughs> what? what? The, uh, the translation device turns my name in, from Japanese into crumb, C-R-O-M-B. So I guess that's how you would pronounce it in, Jap in Japanese, crumb. Uh, but then... They also pronounce it clum with a K, or spell it K with a K. Um, and they spell William Beersack, William L. Beersack, B-I-E-R-S-A-C-K. So that's, they, they took the K to an H with K. Huh. United States author, person from Manhattan, born in 1960, living person. One of the, one of the Czechs call me. American Royalist Christian Democrats are oh, very good. But nobody, only the English speakers call me an immigrant, an American immigrant to Austria. And I am not an immigrant. So there. What are you? I'm an American living at the moment in Austria. And presumably I'll be coming back at some point soon. Presumably. Okay. Presumably. So, status update. What's the deal? Everyone asks me because I'm I'm your like connection over here in person. What's happening with Charles? What's happening when with Charles? When I know, you'll know. How's that? I think you know. I think I should be home in October, maybe. But well, permanently. Wait, what? I should be home in October, maybe. In October, baby. 
No, maybe. Okay. Not um, maybe. You, you, you're still stuck with if I try to creep you out in the pre-show. Did okay. I do a fairly good job at that? Yes, you did. Exceptional. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, but no, uh, I said maybe, not baby. Maybe, baby. I don't, maybe, baby. You're coming home just for like a week or so or, or a month or, uh, I, or more? Can't make it. I am. I have nothing until I finish the two books I'm writing right now. I ain't going no place. Uh, I'm sorry. Could you say that again? You you blipped out. Until I finish the two books I am writing now, I ain't going no place. No, but I mean, like when you in that October visit is like, are you moving here for good, or is that a is that a va- vacation or a trip? I or? don't know. Oh, okay. Okay. It's up in the air. I've, uh, you know, I've got a number of things going on here. As I said, I've got to get the books done first. And if they're not, they they need to be done before October. But if they're not, then I'm not going anywhere. Um, The, um, and then as as I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, I I have to be so cagey simply because there are a number of different things number of projects developing here and I'm not sure whether they're going to come off or not. And if they do, then I'll be here longer. And if they're not, then I won't. Okay. Or to put it another way, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. You know, I think, I think, it was Trudy Garland in The Wizard of Oz who said it best. I do. I really, really do. Here are mortal lines. You remember? Remember uh, what she said? I, re- I remember you, you took exception to what she said at the end where she misspoke and it was weird. I and- don't think she misspoke. And now, now, all right, I'll, I'll tell you. Let's try this. Let's try this another way, shall we? Okay. All right. What we'll do is this: uh, the um, all right. Ask me what I've learned in five years in Austria. Okay, Charles. Uh, what have you learned in five years in Austria? If if I ever go looking for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. If it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. Yeah, that, that that's just a jumbled sentence. That's just... It, it, it almost achieves a coherent thought, but it just didn't. It doesn't quite get there. Yeah, but it gets close. I, I know what she was trying to say. That, what was she trying to say? That everything you want is at home, and you don't need to go out exploring. Is that true? It does. I don't know whether it's true. I'm not making a value judgment. I. It's just what she said, and I unconditionally I accept what she said. Do you oh, know? are you into unconditional acceptance? 
In this instance, yes. Other instances where you're against unconditional acceptance. There are instances where I'm uncomfortable giving someone unconditional acceptance, yes. Do you think my brother was wrong to give unconditional acceptance to the uh, drunken lady at the party? This is a reference from the pre-show. In order to see this content, sign up for $5 a month. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not that we're making a shameless plug, ladies and gentlemen. No, no, we're we're above that. We're not like some of these cheesy. I just podcasts. said I'd get right to it. You know, just get right to it. Uh, we're, we're we're not like some of these cheesy podcasts that that would do something like that. So, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, your brother was. Not wrong. He was blissfully ignorant, so I feel like he could unconditionally accept her. Well, just so you know, ladies and gentlemen, the incident we're referring to was seven years ago at a party that my brother and I were at, where an old acquaintance of ours, a lady who, in her far-off youth, had been a supermodel, but unfortunately no longer was. And one thing, this was a discussion of Nancy Sinatra was what prompted this. It is amazing the gorgeous chicks can actually get a lot more deference when they're gorgeous and young than when they're a lot older and not so gorgeous anymore. You know, yeah. I mean, you, you you saw what Nancy Sinatra looks like now. Yeah. Okay. Now, if Nancy Sinatra in 1968 were to come over you, uh, come over to you, she's, she's drunk, she's spilling her wine, and it would get on your shirt, and she laughs. Okay. Would your reaction be to laugh with her because she's a beautiful chick? Yes. Okay. Now, what if that was Nancy Sinatra today doing it? Um, I, I, w- I guess I would have a different kind of smile on my face. Kind of like a so, smile. Ageist and sexist. Um... Sure. Let's okay. go all the way. Yeah. So that's that's what my brother did because, of course, our acquaintance is no longer the supermodel she was in the 60s by any stretch. Uh, did I say stretch? So uh, she comes over to my brother and says, Andre, I want your unconditional acceptance. We told the story during the pre-show, but uh, he, she kept on coming over doing it and getting drunker and drunker. Finally, Andre says to me, what does she want out of me? And I said, your unconditional acceptance. Haven't you been listening? So when she came over again, I said, all right, I give you my unconditional acceptance. And she said, oh, thanks, and walked off. And she didn't need to do it again because she had what she wanted. And I think unconditional acceptance, I mean, it's what we try to do here at Tumblr House. We try to give unconditional acceptance both to our patrons, our customers, the employees, uh, I, uh, you know, your late lamented great uncle, Don Giovanni, he always got unconditional acceptance. There was never a question ever. Everyone accepted your great uncle unconditionally. Right. No, of course. Well, how could you now, not? Well, the interesting thing was in those days, I mean, today we say unconditional acceptance, in those days, it was called the respect to a made man. Yeah, it was respect, yes. It was respect. 
And that there's a difference, you say. I mean, not a not a practical difference, of course, because when you give respect in that sense, you are actually are giving unconditional acceptance. Yeah, in a sense, yes. You, you wouldn't go up to a made man and say, uh, yeah, I ain't giving you no unconditional acceptance. That's not friendly. No, and, and so, I, I don't... The, you know, the reaction would be suboptimal. Right. Like, in Italian crowds and Italian families, it's really important that you're friendly. We like a friendly crowd. We handle unfriendly people in unfriendly ways. That's all that can it's, be said. It's like the golden rule. <laughs> <laughs> do unto others before they do unto you. <laughs> it's like the golden rule, in a sense. It sounds like it. It's similar. It's like a para-golden rule. Yeah. Well, you know, there, there were Italians in Austria-Hungary. Trieste, there were, not there are? Were. Oh, there still are. In Trentino, Trieste, Dalmatia. Oh, sure. Okay. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're, um, they were very different from the southern Italians you used to. La, 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 la. They were much more northern Italians. In their mannerisms. That's fine. All sorts of different types of people in the world, Charles. And they brought pasta to the Croatians. That's good. They did a good. They they did a good thing there, right? They did. Uh, the late lamented Lumar restaurant in Monrovia was a Croatian restaurant. And it was interesting. It was one of the few places where you could get spaghetti alla bolognese or schnitzel on the same uh, and goulash on the same uh, the same menu. That's awesome. It was. I was really sorry it went out of business, but that's the pandemic for you. Hmm. That's very true. All right, uh, let us move on. Uh, no memes of production this week, um, but we have a book of the week. We do indeed. And the book of the week is C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength. Now, I know what you're wondering. A, why am I recommending C.S. Lewis? B, why am I recommending the third volume of a trilogy? I mean, isn't that like reading uh, Return of the King first in Lord of the Rings? Well, the answer is... Lewis's fiction, in my humble estimation, although I like some of his nonfiction, is, is fiction. In his nonfiction, he felt compelled to be the Ulster Scott he was raised. But his fiction is much more, has a much more Catholic spirit than a lot of his nonfiction. Um, most, I think, because he um, paradoxically could be himself. That Hideous Strength, although being the third volume, it does stand alone. And if you go back and read uh, Paralandra and Out of the Silent Planet, uh, you won't have lost anything by reading That Hideous Strength because they're very different books. Um, and you'll find out how one character became the way he was. But That Hideous Strength is a book I give every 18-year-old I know when they turn 18. Uh, partly because it really does, in a certain sense, illustrate how grown-up life works. 
And in fact, it's subtitled A Fairy Tale for Grown-Ups. And I think that that really describes it very, very well. Um, the insidiousness of the horrors that we deal with today is sort of predicted. And the funny thing about it is that on one level, it's a dystopian novel, a post, an immediate post-World War II dystopian novel, like Brave New World, like 1984, although Brave New World was written before, I think, uh, 1984, Lord of the Flies. Um, and it's like those in one sense, but because it goes for the supernatural and preternatural things beyond the natural, just like with Lord of the Rings on another level for different reasons, you get a feeling that this is, in a sense, the way things really work. In other words, underneath and outside and around the everyday struggles of life are the powers and principalities against which we struggle or with which we are aligned. And that, it's a very powerful book. So I recommend it highly to you, That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis. Oddly enough, available through Catholic, uh, not Catholic treasures, through uh, Tumblr House Bookstore. Tumblr House Bookstore. Uh, seven, buy 17 copies, and you may be able to negotiate free shipping and handling. That that's actually true. If you buy seventeen copies, you might want to pay an extra five bucks to become a patron, get free shipping and handling automatically. Uh, it's actually the book's actually on sale. It's normally seventeen dollars. Now it's eleven dollars. Um, so uh, also, if you uh, uh, give send in a book review, get an immediate discount code coupon for five dollars off your order. There's a lot of different ways to save money in the Tumblr House bookstore. So yeah. I've been wanting to read that in, uh, that book for a long time, Charles. I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. Um, I recommend it. By the way, is there any special deal on the toasters or towels in the gift shop? I mean, they're already at discount prices. They're at uh, how how much lower do you want to go? We're practically giving them away as it is, Charles. I mean, come how on. How about shipping and handling on the toasters? Well, that's the benefit of coming into the store and, and checking out the tower and all that. You don't have to pay shipping and handling. So, um, yeah, but you got to go through security. Yeah, and we get to learn more about you and, and develop a personal relationship and a lot of stuff like that. There's a lot of benefits yeah. coming into the store. All right. So. Yeah. That, that. <laughs> Remember what we were saying during the pre-show about being creeped out? I'm creeped out now, officially. <laughs> <laughs> You got me. I'm creeped out. Okay. Developing that kind of personal relationship in the gift shop, I don't think I want to do. <laughs> you know, you know, it's a bad day when you go to a gift shop and the clerk asks your blood type. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> There's something a little bit dodgy about that shop. <laughs> they they ask your blood type and next of kid. But <laughs> all right, uh, on to the questions we've got. Right. Uh, in so we talked a lot. Uh, you talked a lot about um, libertarianism, and you said some interesting things, some interesting criticisms. Uh, and I know there's a lot of people on YouTube, a um, lot of comments. Uh, everyone's talking about Thomas Woods. 
So uh, Rob, superfan Rob, who's a patron, um, voices this question. Uh, he says, may I recommend to you the writings of Thomas Woods on libertarianism? He is a libertarian and a traditional Catholic. I think you might enjoy the church and the market. You may still disagree, but you will have an excellent understanding of libertarianism. And just as an aside, Anne Rand hated libertarians. Her philosophy was called objectivism. Well, I must say that I, Thomas Worker I already know. I know Tom Woods, and he's a great fellow. Um, I have never read any of his libertarian stuff. Uh, I haven't spoken to him in quite a while, but he's a great fellow, so I give it a look. Um, the uh, boy's willing to be corrected if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong. It's a big if. But I can be. Wrong, I mean. And okay. so I can be corrected. Now, uh, as far as, uh, what is it, uh, obscurantism? Objectivism. Objectivism, yeah. Yeah, well, no, I mean, she she was a great hater anyway. Um, I, I noticed, I didn't, uh, I didn't read everything, but I noticed that we had a number of defenders of Ayn Rand uh, speak up. Um, now, if you like her, you like her. The... Um, but I think this is an argument which has been going on for a long time. And you know what I'm going to do? What? I'm going to wuss out. You're going to wuss out? I'm going to wuss out, yeah. It, How did are, you ever wait, wuss are you out? saying you don't know what you're talking about? Is yeah, that pretty much. Yeah. I don't really, I don't really, look, A, Tom Woods has gone into it a great deal, and I have no idea of what he's written about it. I've read a bit of Ayn Rand. I didn't really care of what I what I wrote, but what I read, I didn't write Ayn Rand. She was I, I never even wrote her a fan letter. I've, uh, but what I read was back in college. Obviously, everyone is, uh, shall we say, passionately devoted to either to Tom or to Ayn. Uh, Ayn, of course, I or Tom rather, I've uh, got an immense personal respect for so at this stage of this game i am going to wuss out like a little girly man tail between my legs leaving the field of combat okay um well if you're gonna be a little girly man you're gonna be punished like a girly man so i'll just read because uh, I, I like feed, you know i like when we get feedback on youtube comments uh and feedback share who are, you, who are you calling feedback. your feedbagger? Are you calling me a feedbagger? Okay, whatever, Charles. Yes. Okay. Um, she. All right. So Sherry, who has publicly subscribed to us for two years, so she's been here a while. Um, hi, Sherry. So she says, Charles, I'm surprised at your view on Ayn Rand and libertarianism. It's not about grabbing all you can. It's about the ability to keep what you earn without the government taking it for whatever it may deem to be the common good. Oh, that's interesting. So, libertarian. So that she seems to disagree about libertarianism uh, not having a common good. So she goes on and says they are thieves. They want to take the money you earn and the industry you create. That includes the great estates and monasteries of England that were created out of charity and self-interest for the common good by private interests. Oh, okay. Um, the monks took care of the destitute, not the governments. 
The governments made them wage slaves. Anne Rand portrays governments as parasitical. They curtail progress. Read Atlas Shrugged carefully. You must know better. So, Well, of course, part of the problem there, I mean, number one, the uh, it's, it's the states. When you speak about the monks, the monasteries, don't forget it was the Catholic governments of Europe, specifically the French, the Portuguese, and the Spanish, who paid for their going overseas. You know, the missions of California were not paid for by free donations of private individuals. They were paid for by the king, as was the entirety of the church in Latin America and the church in the Portuguese Indies. And for that matter, the church in Canada, Louisiana, and the French. Um, I think a lot depends on, you know, to, to simply say that government, government is always bad and private enterprise is always good is an era along the lines of saying that censorship is always good or bad or freedom of speech is always good or bad. I think it's a question of which government, what kind of government, what uh, you're always going to have a ruling class. So the question is, what do they believe? What is their nature? Who are they? As far as... Hmm? Yeah, no, it's interesting because as Sherry says, I mean, what Sherry seems to be implying that the mechanism of, of government is inherently parasitical. I don't know if that was her intention, but that's how I, I read that's, it. That's, that's what it sounds like. And the problem is that certainly that's true of modern governments. But, you know, even the monasteries she speaks of, uh, a lot of them were funded by the kings. Westminster Abbey, where the king was just crowned, that was founded by Senate with the Confessor. It wasn't founded by private interests. Um, the whole, the chaplaincies in the military are vague descendants of the medieval chaplaincies. Um, so, I mean, government. We're used to governments that are parasites the way we're used to rulers who wouldn't die for us. Mm. But there have been there have been long periods when being ready to die for your people is considered to be a sine qua non of being a leader. And not just in the state either. Uh, the, the reason why the cardinals wear red is that it is their right. Notice the way I said right not obligation, not even privilege, their right to be able to die for their flocks if called upon. And if Cardinal Seepage and, and Cardinal McElroy and, and Cardinal Tobin choose to exercise that right, it's not up to me to say they're wrong. Hmm. But at any rate, I, I think that part of the problem here is equating everything with everything. So Again, to take uh, censorship as an example. Are, are you in favor of censorship? Are you against censorship? Well, what are you censoring? And to what end? And who's who's doing the censoring? You know? Hmm. And similarly, I'm for free speech. Oh, really? So I think part of the problem is the uh, we have a tendency to argue uh, apples and oranges. Yeah, but I'm still wussing out. That's okay. I unconditionally accept you, Charles. Uh, Ooh. Oh. As as a girly man. 
You know, speaking of parasitical comment, uh, governments, um, comments, <laughs> sorry. Parasitical comments. Um, <laughs> I'd like your wallet. The, um, <laughs> there was one amusing comment uh, on, to- you know, your your rant against player. Your, your oh. rant. Yeah, yeah. So Andrew from New Jersey says, I always thought it was very strange that Tony Blair's parents chose to give him the middle name of I'm a piece of garbage. Seems out of place for that stiff upper lip style society the Brits are known for. I know, right? That was really. <laughs> That's funny. the only answer I got for that. He's right, though. What a, it is an odd middle name to give. I have no idea why they did that. <laughs> um. Okay, so you're wussing out. That's fine. We we still love you, Charles. Um, and we're moving on. All right. Uh, they John- say that wussing out's not hard to do, and now I know, I know that it's true. I <laughs> don't say that this is a bend. Instead of wussing out, I wish that I was freaking out again. <laughs> oh, well, Sadaka's back. That's what the Captain Tadeo would always say. All right. John says, would Charles be able to give us a complete history of Catholic education in the United States? Boy, I re- now I really feel like what's the gap. Well, Catholic education of the United States um, began, first and foremost, you've got to bear in mind that public education in the United States was, as a rule, rather anti-Catholic. It was religious in a generic Protestant way. So you had school prayer, which usually included the Lord's Prayer, but it was the Lord's Prayer in the Protestant version. You know, for thine is the, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Um, and there would be a reading from the King James Bible. So, uh, and the, the history that they would teach was often very biased against the church and very Protestant. So, Pretty early on, um, parishes attempted schools when they could. We're going back out of the 1830s and 40s. Uh, successive plenary councils of the bishops uh, of the United States of Baltimore made parish schools official policy, I think, in the, in the 1850s. And once that happened, uh, various bishops began importing um or founding orders of nuns, um, Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton, who was an early convert, uh, was also, I think, one of the first pioneers of Catholic education in the United States. Uh, and certainly, the school, uh, the the Sisters of Loretto in Kentucky, uh, there were a number of these that came over to or were founded here uh, to teach children. Um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's daughter, Rose Hawthorne Lathrop, uh, founded an order of, of teaching nuns, and so it went. Uh, in the case of Los Angeles, uh, Bishop Amat brought a group of nuns over from Spain, the Sisters of the Immaculate Heart. And uh, the American branch remained subject to the Spanish branch until the 1920s. And then they broke off uh, with the support of the then Bishop Archbishop Cantwell and then uh, went cray-cray in the 60s. And then a group of them uh, went sane 
or stayed sane. And they're the forerunners of the uh, Sisters of the Immaculate Heart of uh, Wichita, Kansas. But at any rate, um, so uh, this the, the Catholic schools uh, then included, after a while, universities uh, in the 1840s and 50s. They started out as seminaries, actually, but then we, we began to get universities, uh, colleges, and then universities, uh, Notre Dame. The Jesuits began founding their schools and so forth. And by World War One, you had a um, complete network of Catholic universities across the country. Many Jesuit, many not. Uh, and then um, so things went up until World War Two. It kept expanding. World War Two. The end of World War II, the uh, church in America exploded in size, and the Catholic school system exploded in size as well, uh, which brought about a rather unfortunate tendency uh, because you needed more and more nuns since all this was done on the cheap. You needed more nuns to teach, and that meant putting the nuns out at uh, greater numbers. And that in, for many orders, meant diluting or attenuating their, their uh, uh, formation. So much so that in some places, including L.A. with the IHMs, you had novices teaching school. And, you know, traditionally, only a professed nun was allowed to, to deal with that. Because it's a lot of work, you know. You need to be spiritually mature to deal with annoying chillings. Um, so Vatican II came and there was kind of a, a triple whammy, if you will, uh, on religious life, the, uh, the orders of nuns for various reasons, uh, especially the teaching orders kind of semi-collapsed and began their long tailspin, which continues to this day. Well, that meant the Catholic elementary schools would have to hire uh, lay teachers, but lay teachers have to be paid a living wage. And a lot of parishes couldn't afford that, so Catholic schools kept closing and closing and closing down to the present. At the same time, the Catholic element in uh, catechesis, both in uh, elementary, high schools, and uh, CCD, went down the tubes. And it, it used to be a joke. The best thing you could do if you want to make your kid a non-Catholic is send them to Catholic schools. So that was through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even into the present. Um, and in 1969, I think it was, the um, major American Catholic colleges and universities signed what was called the Land O'Lakes uh, Agreement. Which held that from now on, basically, they would not these colleges and uh, universities, the quote-unquote Catholic ones, would not allow their Catholic identity to get in the way of academic freedom and and blah blah blah. In other words, they would be just like secular colleges with a Catholic label, primarily for recruiting and fundraising purposes. So that's how Notre Dame and Georgetown and places like that became uh, no better and in some ways worse than the Ivy League, as far as the faith was concerned. But 
you had a reaction to this, and the reaction uh, consisted of the formation by various private interests of alternative Catholic academies and alternative Catholic colleges, uh, especially in the United States. So, I mean, these came at different times in different places, and very often, uh, you know, you'd have uh, alumni of a given alternative Catholic college get active in starting on alternative Catholic academies, and vice versa, because then the alternative Catholic academies would produce kids who'd want to go to such colleges. So, among those, and, they're, and they, they differ amongst each other in various ways, but you've got the two Thomas Aquinas colleges. Uh, you've got uh, Thomas More, uh, Magdalene College, Christendom, Ave Maria, and in a certain sense, Steubenville. Uh, and there are a few others uh, that are sort of kind of not that far into orthodoxy, but rearing that way. Uh, Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas, and some others. Oh, Wyoming Catholic College, that's in the top tier. And then, of course, my own International Theological Institute in uh, Trumau, Austria, which, despite being in Austria, has a uh, primarily American student base. Um, as over against that, you have the ever-growing network not just of Catholic, but of quote-unquote conservative and classical academies, uh, which are partly a response to the collapse of the Catholic school system uh, and partly a response to the collapse of public education entirely. So you have, that's where the classical academy thing will come in. Um, but you have places like our own, uh, our own uh, St. Teresa's Church in uh, uh, Alhambra are, uh, have experimented with the uh, academy system because I guess they, what they've been doing wasn't working. So uh, that's where we are now. Uh, the interesting thing, of course, is that if you took all of those Catholic colleges I mentioned together, they're not really in competition with each other because if you took all the BA slots they have to offer, there aren't enough. And the proof of the pudding is that when TAC uh, got a, TAC has a limited number of students, I think 300 or something. They only have so many. Uh, when they acquired their Eastern campus, which would, would hold just as many, it filled up immediately. There wasn't even a question. Uh, and I have no doubt that if they got a third or a fourth campus or any of the other colleges I mentioned expanded, they, as long as they, you know, got publicity and got the name out, I have no doubt that they'd uh, have a hard time not staying full. Hmm. Or to put this another way, to paraphrase our Lord, uh, the laborers are few, but the fields are white with harvest. All right. Uh Next question is from Daniel. Daniel says, uh, I am loosely connected to a few religious orders committed to the traditional liturgy and who are trying to live out an authentic Catholic life. 
My question concerns how monasteries throughout the history of the church dealt with the latest technology of their day. Would monasteries, say, in the 9th century, 14th century, or 19th century, have consciously tried to avoid the use of the latest technology available to their society? It's a question a friend and I were recently pondering as we discussed the different degrees to which religious orders today interact with modern technology and conveniences. I tend to favor more of a Luddite approach, but am now wondering whether that's just a fake LARPing idea of the attitude of monks throughout history. Yeah, it's a fake LARPing idea. And okay. I, I, don't say, I don't say that just to be snide, although I'm capable of saying things like that just to be snide. No. Uh, the thing is, you've got to bear in mind that traditionally, the monasteries were actually at the forefront of scientific advance. There were reasons for this. For one thing, in the beginning, they were the ones who preserved all of the scientific uh, documents. And when we're talking about scientific advance, remember, we today basically think of porn for everybody as the fruit of scientific advance. But in reality, uh, new, new agricultural techniques, for instance, very, very often the monasteries came up with them first. Um, and I don't need to tell you about Mendel and genetics. They, um, the fact is that when it came to pure research, they tended to really go in for it. And, and not just the monastics. The, uh, think of uh, uh, scientists of their day like Roger Bacon and Robert Grosteste, who were devout Franciscans, uh, or, or St. Albertus Magnus. Uh, another scientist of sorts. Um, so uh, I think the real question is not scientific advance or technological advance. It's, of course, what the specific thing is and how it's used. So, for instance, if I were running a monastery, uh, nobody but nobody but nobody would have... Uh, access to the internet without supervision. And I'd be the same way, uh, I'd, if I were a father, I'd be the same way with my children. You know, uh, if, uh, if you made a rule that uh, whenever the computer is being used, there have to be two or three other monks in the room, that would cut down a lot on problems. Um, but see, they've, they've always had to deal with this. I mean, it's the same with uh, it's the same with publications, you know, with uh, with uh, newspapers and magazines and books and all these things that they were developed. There's a reason why they have the index of prohibited books, uh, and why dioceses had the censor librarum. But. Um, just as we were saying earlier about uh, censorship and free speech, so too with technology. Uh, Catholic hospitals, very often run by Catholic orders in the old days, made a number of medical advances. And they were, you know... So, I mean, we, we, you, you were very perceptive to catch the uh, LARPer in yourself. 
we have to remember that we don't live in the Renaissance fair. Yeah, I, I wonder to what extent that's just some of the poison, the anti-science church poison that's kind of dripping into that area, you know? Well, uh, I mean, the, the, the problem is, and it's a real problem, is that science, scientificism, has become a religion of its own. And a lot of Catholics have been infected with it. And so the, res- the response is, well, it's all evil. I mean, mutatis mutandis. Uh, you, you, if you really want to get people going, and I think this is a great illustration, it's the heliocentric versus the uh, 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 geocentric uh, argument. I mean, personally, I don't think it's an argument that really can be settled. Uh, at least I can't settle it. But I know it's wrong for believing Catholics to castigate each other for holding the other view. Now, I think the geocentrists, when they speak about the effect that, uh, that heliocentrism had on the faith and on culture, they're quite correct. That's an historical fact. It doesn't tell us which one is correct, objectively speaking, or for that matter, if one can say, we don't really know what the universe is in terms of its extent or its size or anything else. I mean, they say it's constantly expanding. Well, how do you measure that? And what is it expanding into? I don't know. Uh, Similarly, when you have creationists fighting the uh, theistic evolutionists, I... uh, I have a problem with evolution because of what I know about genetics. It doesn't seem to me that the real, it doesn't seem to me that Darwinian evolution or any other kind like that, macroevolution, can occur because of the seemingly limited number of options that genetics give uh, give one. But, the other, the other problem I have, of course, uh, was the one brought up by the uh, dinosaur bones of Mary, what's her name? Uh, because either way, it messes up completely what we think we know about paleontology. Whether the dinosaurs lived much more recently than we thought, or whether organic matter lasts a lot longer than we thought, Either way, we're wrong, and it blows the construct that paleontologists have been working with. And, of course, when I say that, inevitably someone will say, oh, so you're saying the world was created in seven days in 4004. No, it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I don't know, but more importantly, you don't know either. You've been teaching this dogma, which is what it is. And what I'm saying is you can't possibly know from the evidence as it is. You can't prove your points. So in a murky area like this, just as I think it's wrong for heliocentrists and um, uh, geocentrists to throw doubt on each other's Catholicity, 
I say the same for creationists and theistic evolutionists. I'm not saying don't argue the points. I'm not saying, but, but argue the facts. And above all, don't, don't be bitter over it. You know, uh, if you could say the, if you could say the four creeds and I can say the four creeds and we have the same faith and whatever else we disagree on is secondary to that. Even if I'm right and you're wrong, whichever side you and I are on, on whichever of these things it is, if I castigate you as being somehow heretical or, or even less Catholic than I am, I'm wrong. And I've certainly lost to whatever charity I had, unless I'm still giving to the March of Dimes, in which case, maybe. But no, I, I mean, and that's something I feel very strongly about. You know, I, I, I feel very strongly about people excommunicating each other and jumping up and down in areas that are not dogmatic. And I, and I realize, too, before anyone jumps on me, that these things do have dogmatic implications. I understand that. But if there appears to be a difference between religion and science, Number one, you go with religion on the surface of it simply because that's what's revealed and the other is not. Secondly, you don't believe the science, you test it. That was a big problem during the whole COVID thing with Fauci's face or whatever it is he talks out of, uh, yapping about how you have to believe the science. No, no, you don't. You don't believe the science any more than you test the dogma. It's the other way around. You believe the dogma, you test the science. You see, dogma is revealed. It's absolute truth. But anything that is not revealed truth is really and truly up for grabs. And if you could prove a better case than I can, then, then you have. Or then, you know, by all means, do it. Okay. Uh, that was really good, Charles. That was, that was one of those Charles Coulomb t uh, moments, TM. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, oh, you're welcome. Does, uh, you weren't creeped out. No, that was great. Did I, did I, I'm do sorry I get... to disappoint. <laughs> Can't have everything. Do I get unconditional acceptance on this one? Absolutely, Charles. Unconditional acceptance it is. Do I come across as a highly developed new age teacher? On this point, no. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. Okay. All right. Uh, does new age rhyme? Does new age new age rhyme with sewage? New age doesn't rhyme with sewage, and sewage is one word. New age is two words. I will not join those together in my mind. New age. You know, we need to clear some of the newage out. All right. Uh, Will says, hi there. Will Charles speak briefly about Appalachian heritage, history, and culture? It's the code of the hills. Yep. Cousins are as close as brothers. I, I remember when Uncle Dad, Naughty Bob, you, oh, forget it. No, actually, I'm, I'm being nasty. The truth is, that Appalachian folklore and so on is very interesting. Uh, 
The Appalachians were primarily settled, though not entirely, by Scots-Irish, also Scots. But there were elements of English and um, uh, German as well. Uh, they've got a very fascinating culturally because they retained certain old manners of speech and old old folk songs and old folklore from the British Isles that are sometimes lost even in England. Uh, there was a, um, what was his name? The name of the book was Grandfather Tales. Richard Chase, that was it. Grandfather Tales, American English Folk Tales, a treasury of Appalachian folk tales uh, that uh, Chase gathered. But the, the funny thing about it um, is the collection of tales from North Carolina and Virginia from the Appalachians wrapped in the frame story of an evening telling tales. But they also had a mummer's play, which in the book. I remember that very, very well. Let's see. Mummer's play. Appalachia. Yeah. The uh, Mummer's plays. Yeah, they're still doing the. They're still doing uh, Mummer's plays in Appalachia. Oh no! It says here in Appalachia the tradition of mumming died out after World War One, but I see they've got pictures of it. The Pine Mountain Settlement School collections, Christmas in Appalachia lyrics and mummers play script. So they've they've done their bit to revive it in Appalachia. Um, they're very Protestant, of course. These were Calvinist people. A uh, lot of strange tales of ghosts and things like that. Um, sort of a collector of those sorts of tales, a fictionalizer, but there's a writer named Manly Wade Wellman, whose uh, most famous book in the genre is called Who Fears the Devil? Um, but yeah, the, the, the Appalachians are fascinating. The music, of course, um, they have psalm singing that directly comes from Northern Ireland and before that Scotland um, in a, a very haunting way. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's quite the place in, in terms of folk culture. Uh, before Vatican II, there were certain areas the church made a, uh, a very uh, concerted effort to evangelize the Appalachian folk. Uh, unfortunately, that pretty much died out after Vatican II. Uh, and now most of the most of the Catholics in uh, the Appalachian area aren't converts, but you know immigrants from other parts of the country, and from uh, Latin America, of course, and Mexico. Um, interestingly enough, though, during the Great Migration westward in the 1820s and 30s and 40s. A lot of Appalachian people went to the Ozarks. 
And so you have the Ozark culture, which has a lot of connections with the Appalachian culture. And it's, it's fascinating to me because here you've got people who were buried in their mountain fastnesses in Appalachia. They could go anywhere they wanted. So where'd they go? Somebody's just like it. The Ozarks. Uh, like any isolated mountainous area, you see it in the Alpine areas here in Europe and the Carpathians. Uh, a lot of jokes about inbreeding and little villages cut off and all this kind of thing. Uh, you know, that's that's an old, old story in any Alpine area. Uh, even in the Himalayas, you know, people make jokes about inbreeding amongst the Sherpas and so forth. So, I, but it's, it's a fascinating part of the world. I, I wish Frank had had more time to spend there. Uh, I've often thought, you know, if I if I had not been a comedian and if I had lived in a different world, <laughs> a different time, I should say, when uh, the defense of the faith was kind of the biggest and foremost game in town, I've often thought I would have loved to have been a folklorist because I've, I've always had a fascination with it, and I still do. Uh, not least because you can still see little bits and pieces of the pre-Reformation Catholic heritage of the British Isles. The Christmas mummer shows are the most obvious, but uh, there are other things. They, um, I understand, although it could be wrong, that some Appalachian valleys even had the old Welsh custom of the Sin Eater into the 19th, 19th century. I don't know if that's true or just used for effect, but so I've been told. Um, but yeah, if if uh, if our questioner has roots to Appalachia, um, you know, be proud of it. It's something to be proud of. Their uh, their their folk music too. Some of it's very haunting. Uh, they're old timey mountain music, as they used to call it. And it's funny. Uh, bluegrass sort of descends a bit from it, although it's from a different area, From, but it came out of Kentucky. And the thing about Appalachia, it extends from Pennsylvania through Maryland, uh, Virginia, West Virginia, um, Kentucky, Tennessee, North Carolina. Peter's out pretty much in uh, the north, northwestern Georgia. But it's it's a world all its own, and one well worth exploring. I speak as someone who has been both to Dollywood and to um, Biltmore. Um, were you? Did you want to say anything about the Hatfield McCoy feud? Yeah, I suppose I should. Uh, one of the things that came over, we were talking about the clans last time. Uh, yeah. And we also spoke about Italian uh, uh, professional families. We don't use the C word on the show. Yep, a professional family. I kind of like that. Yeah, professional. That sounds better than the C word. Yeah. So you know the the Genovese professional family. Yeah. So the Franchini professional family. So. The thing is that um, the clan structure, in a sense, the, 
in, in, in maybe both the um, extended family structure and the yeah windy fields. Yeah. yeah, that's coming in from the hills. Yeah, it's blowing off the mountains. Uh, no, but the the um, the um, clans the the clan system in a sense, and the vendetta system, which is also a big part of Alpine life, of uh, in the Balkans and the Carpathians and so on. You know, people settle their own issues without appealing to outsiders. Because remember, people generally went into the mountains to get away from whatever was running the flats. You know, it was generally not their first choice. So one of the things is that they didn't want to be told what to do. Which meant that they would solve their problems between themselves, and that led to these feuds that went on forever. Well, the Hatfields and McCoys, the feud began because family was pro-Union and one was pro-Confederate in West Virginia, which a state that had seceded from Virginia over slavery, over secession. In other words, the state of Virginia, the Commonwealth of Virginia, I should say, seceded from the Union, but a number of those counties that were Unionist uh, said, well, hell no, we're, we won't go. We're not leaving. And they, in turn, seceded from Virginia. Um, interestingly enough, the areas of West Virginia the, the, that were settled at the time of the Revolution uh, were generally loyalist. And sure enough, comes the Civil War. They're no more interested in breaking with the Union than their grandfathers were with breaking with the King. So they secede, but of course, not everybody feels that way. Just like not everyone felt that not everybody was a loyalist in the revolution in West Virginia. So, but they'd had, you know, 80 years of development on their own. So one of the two families, I don't know which was which, but either the Hatfields or the McCoys were pro-Union, the other was pro-Confederate, and the ill feeling between the two families started with that. And then one of them shot one of the one of them and it went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, an eye for an eye. And it went on for several decades. And I forget, frankly, how it ended, but it became the the byword for a mountain few, Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh, very much like uh, the Montagues and the Capulets in Romeo and Juliet. The, the same idea of two families equal in stature, blah, blah, blah. Uh, which is, oddly enough, something that, uh, when they're not actually involved in, in doing it, that people are fascinated by, which is why there, there are certain things in, in American history, certain crimes and mayhem that people will always be fascinated by. Lizzie Borden uh, is one, but the Hatfields and the McCoys are another. Right. Final question today is from Ryan. And Ryan says, what is the coolest relic that Charles has had the privilege to venerate? Not necessarily just because of the saint in question, but because of the nature of the object itself. For example, I've been able to venerate the head of St. Oliver Plunkett in Droida or the hand of St. Stephen in Budapest. 
Could Charles offer some further comments about the rather macabre nature of relics and what it conveys about the Calic psyche regarding death? Well, let me first say I've venerated both the head of St. Oliver Plunkett and Droida and the holy hand of St. Stephen, the holy right hand, uh, at St. Stephen's Basilica in Budapest. I've been able to venerate, thank God, a lot of uh, remarkable relics and shrines. But the most remarkable, in my humble estimation, is the Holy Host of Hasselt in the town of Hasselt in Belgium, which is just what it sounds like. It's a host that was stabbed during the Middle Ages and began to bleed. And as you can imagine, uh, the people were somewhat taken aback because they always are by Eucharistic miracles. Eventually, it was placed in a monstrance and put up for veneration, and it remains there today. It's a very unremarkable-looking thing because it's a host that's off-white. It's not white, but it's off-white. It's got a little brown stain where it bled, and that's it. But as I sat there kneeling, or sat there as I knelt there, rather, looking at it, it suddenly occurred to me, it's not in an airtight, uh, an airtight container. It's just a monstrance. The thing has no business existing. You might say that scientifically speaking, it has no right to exist, like the Tillman Guadalupe. like a lot of Eucharistic miracles of a certain age. So I would say that is the most exciting relic I've ever venerated. I'd love to go to Lanciano. There are a lot of other Eucharistic miracles I'd like to venerate, but this is the only one I've actually come up to. Isn't there one that bleeds at a certain time of year or something? What? Yeah, so that's the... Uh, is that January? So, yeah, or San Gennaro in Italian in Naples. But I've not been to Naples. It's too far south for me. My ears start to bleed. Uh, no, south of Rome, Italy gets very, very difficult. Well, I, I feel bad for you because um, you're really okay. Just well, you know what happens is all those wonderful cream sauces and everything—they turn to tomato, and all that butter. It becomes olive oil. I should go further south. <laughs> now, it's either that, or I just haven't had the opportunity to get to Naples and will give my eye teeth to go there. Okay. You can, that's decide, nice. which, that's you can decide which of these two is <laughs> like there. And ditto with Bari and the uh, Basilica of St. Nicholas. Mm. So you could decide which of these two possibilities. The, the snooty one or the pathetic one is is the either, oh, it's it's so beneath me, I wouldn't go to southern Italy, or I just don't have the time or the money yet. Okay. You, you may decide which of the two is like there. Okay, it's a hard choice. I'll give it some serious thought. <laughs> All right, very good. Be judicious. <laughs> uh but the the uh, as far as the other goes, well, I mean the relics are a way of connecting with the saint, just like the Eucharistic miracles or the relics of those are a way of connecting directly with our Lord. 
Um, and they have another similarity in that um, any Eucharistic miracle or um, a relic of the precious blood or something like that is not given the divine worship that we give to the host. And the reason for that is that our Lord is present humanity and divinity in those. But he's only present in his humanity in, for instance, the relics of the precious blood. I'm not quite sure about the Eucharistic miracles, but I know that relics of the precious blood, they get the highest form of uh, veneration we would give saints. But the very fact that there's just his, his human blood, the divine element is gone, and so you don't venerate it. You don't worship it the way you worship the host. Um, but obviously, if you're venerating the head of St. Of Oliver Plunkett, he's not there anymore. He's in heaven. But it nevertheless keys you in in a, a very particular way, a very sp special way, to that given saint. It's like the, the hand of St. Edmund Arrowsmith, which I have yet to venerate, hope to one day. These, these sorts of relics, what it says is that for the Catholic, the church triumphant is never far away, and it's also tangible. You know, the, the ours is not a religion of the purely spiritual. It's not, you know, newage. It, it, where you, you just sort of transcend the physical. You don't transcend it, you redeem it. And you use the physical as a bridge. I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. When you receive communion, which is as physical as it gets, you take communion into you, but he takes you into him thereby. Where did Jesus say that? I, I, that quote keeps getting thrown at me, and where it's where he Jesus literally says that, or a, doesn't? Is there some sort of Saint Thomas certainly says it? The Saint Thomas, Saint Thomas, Thomas says it. Oh, yeah. Okay, I really I think like Saint that. Augustine. Saint Augustine says it. I think. Yeah, it's pretty neat. I thought I thought there might be some mystic there too. Um, I can't uh, remember. No, it's not. Uh, it's not the lady that did a course in miracles, is it? No, I don't it's know if it's Saint Bridget or I. I can't remember. It's not Jay Z Knight. Not Jay Z Knight. Not, not Beyonce. Nobody. Um, <laughs> it's not Beyonce. Is, it, is she a mystic? Everybody's I don't know. Uh, people with the the I don't know the abbreviation Jay Z makes me think of the rapper, so I went with Beyonce. Well, what about Nancy Sinatra? What about her? Well, what about her summer wine? It's very sweet. Is it well aged? A little too, a little too aged. <laughs> I'd be vinny now. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
gosh. Oh, his dad said, but I'd put this stuff away. Get another batch. <laughs> I, I, I think that's just an outlet better. I don't know what she, she, she needs to do something. I'm not quite sure what, but um, let me just see. I think this is an important note, uh, given where American culture was, both in my youth and childhood and at the present time. Ah, here we go. Strawberries, cherries, and an angel's kiss in the spring. My summer wine is really made from all these things. All right, then the guy sings. I walked in town on silver spurs that jingled to a song that I had only sang to just a few. She saw my silver spurs and said, let's pass some time, and I'll give to you summer wine. Oh, oh, summer wine. Strawberries, cherries, and an angel's kiss in spring. My summer wine is really made from all these things. Take off your silver spurs and help me pass the time, and I will give to you summer wine. Oh, oh, summer wine. My eyes grew heavy and my lips, they could not speak. I tried to get up, but I couldn't find my feet. She reassured me with an unfamiliar line, and then she gave to me more summer wine. Oh, oh, summer wine. Strawberries, cherries, and an angel's kiss in the spring. My summer wine is really made from all these things. Take off your silver spurs and help me pass the time, and I will give to you summer wine. Mm, summer wine. When I woke up, the sun was shining in my eyes. My silver spurs were gone. My head fell twice its size. She took my silver spurs, a dollar and a dime, and left me craving for more summer wine. Oh, oh, summer wine. Okay. So what do you what do you have to say to that? She drugged him and robbed him? I don't know what. Uh... Well, that's what it sounds like, doesn't it? Sounds like she gave the boy a Mickey and took off with his stuff. It's unusual, Charles, but that was the 60s in spades. So, uh, right? 60s? Not 70s? Yeah, it's a 60s song. Okay. okay, good. When Nancy Sinatra was really hot. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode. You don't like to think of Nancy Sinatra being really hot because you saw how she looks now. What does this tell us about hotness? It's very temporary. Precisely. I'll give you an example. Let's say you boiled a pot of water on the stove. Then and it's, it's boiling. Yeah, it's hot. It's rapidly boiling. Right. Okay, now you turn it off and you take it off the, uh, the, the jet that it was on. And you leave it for about four hours. You go to other things. You come back. Is it still going to be hot? No. No. What passes with time? Heat. Hotness. <laughs> I don't know. What? Hotness. Hotness. Passes with time. Okay. Hotness. So however hot you may think you are now, if you live long enough, you won't be. Which is why people from Marilyn Monroe to James Dean remain fixed to the popular imagination. Because dying young, they'll always be remembered when they were looking their best. You show me someone who was either an incredibly gorgeous woman like, oh, I don't know, Nancy Sinatra, 
uh, or a good-looking guy like, um, I don't know, um, Bobby Sherman, and uh, nobody remembers them now. Bobby Sherman? Teen idol of my childhood. Sorry, he I... was one of the three brothers on Here Comes the Bride. Here Come the Brides, which I knew a character on. Uh, my dad's old friend Henry Beckman was Captain Clancy on Here Come the Brides. For those of us who are into seventies TV trivia, okay. Yeah. Now, see if he had died, still looking like that. He'd still be an icon, but he didn't. Neither did Nancy Sinatra, so they're not they're not icons. But Marilyn and James checked out early. Well, so we remember them as icons. I I always thought James Dean was overrated. Honestly, I I've watched all his movies. Teenage Angst, wow, big whoop. Um, well, that's because you didn't have any. It was overdone by it. Just didn't resonate. I mean, East of Eden was whatever. Uh, Rebel Without a Cause was whatever. And um, yeah, but you never what, saw his his pièce de résistance. What? You Which never one? saw his greatest work. Uh, HUD. No, Rebel Without a Clue. Uh, ah. <laughs> <sighs> No, I, you know, I, it, it, what makes what makes popular icons, I say, probably if he hadn't died the way he did, he wouldn't, you know, think of how many actors and actresses um, have no more hits than he does. They have a few hits and then they're gone. Sorry, uh, he wasn't in HUD. I'm sorry. That was just Paul. No, that was, was Paul in, Newman. I'm thinking Giant. Right? Giant, yeah. Giant, yeah. Sorry. But look at Diane Varsi. <sighs> okay. D-I-A-N-E. Varsi. Varsi. Okay. Um, it's got like the girl next door look or something. I don't know. She looks nice. Yeah, but I mean, she was she was hot stuff. But then she got out of acting after you know only four or five movies. Unlike James Dean, though, she wasn't dead. She lived for many years after. And, you know. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally buy it, Charles. Yeah, I get it. There's, there's an old saying, live fast, die young, and leave a beautiful corpse. There you go. I've done one of those things. Yeah. Okay. Well. Well, you're not going to be able to have a beautiful corpse, sadly. Sadly, no. Nor am I going to be able to die young. Yeah. But like Nancy Sinatra, having lived fast, uh, you know, about time to slow down, you know, take it in the slow lane a little bit. All right, Charles, what is it if it's Monday? Um. Oh, I know this one. I know it. I know it. I know it. I know it. It's, 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 it's off the menu. What about the soul you save? It may be your own. See you next time, everyone. Take care, and don't forget to put out the newage.